16 is the passage that we, we're going to look at a few passages, but that was the one that we started off as our first reading. In 1979, Ronald Belford Scott, along with other members of a local band, wrote these words. Living easy, living free, season ticket on a one-way ride, asking nothing, leave me be, taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't nothing I would rather do. Going down party time, my friends are going to be there too. The second verse says this, No stop signs, speed limit. Nobody's going to slow me down. Like a wheel, going to spin it. Nobody's going to mess me around. Hey Satan, paid my dues. Playing in a rocking band. Hey Mama, look at me. I'm on my way to the promised land. Woo. And of course, the iconic phrase the chorus, I'm on a highway to hell, on a highway to hell. The following year, Ronald Belford Scott, better known as Bon Scott, was found dead in his car. He choked on his vomit from excessive drinking the night before. And even though his fellow band members were shocked at first and even thinking of disbanding at first, the words to the song, Highway to Hell, took on a whole new resonance, almost a celebration of Bon Scott's life. And since then it has become an anthem. It has become an anthem to millions who display a fierce, stubborn independence in their choice of lifestyle and ultimate destiny with gay abandon. Now these days it isn't popular or politically correct to preach, write or talk about hell. It is spoken of less and less in churches. Therefore, it is something that I need to address. Unless, of course, it is, unless the subject of hell does come up as part of an outburst, uh, a light-hearted conversation, even a joke where the subject is not meant to be taken too seriously. This is largely because nowadays hell is treated as a matter of personal opinion. For most, hell is a place they hope doesn't exist and if it does, they don't expect to go there. For others, hell is a figment of the imagination from outdated folklore or a place to curse people whom they don't like. For me, personally, I don't like talking about hell. I take no delight in talking about hell because many of the people I have known and many of the people I know are on a highway to hell. I want you to know the reality of hell and I want you to walk out this morning to understanding what the consequences are for rejecting God. And this 
is not because we enjoy talking about hell, but it is another way of appreciating what Jesus did for us on the cross even more and the reason why he had to come and die for our sins. Now, the last century has seen a, a shift in the worldview of hell. There was a time that preachers talked much more about the, this, about the destination of, of the wicked and those who, who refuse the message of the gospel. Uh, one of the great American preachers of the old, uh, Jonathan Edwards, delivered a classic sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. For two hours, he would simply tell the truth of God's word and people were, were, were held spellbound and convicted by the truth of the scriptures. There was a lot more concern about the eternal consequences of our choices than there is in the present. Somewhere along the line we have become much more concerned about lifestyle issues and everyday living practical advice. There has been an emphasis, it is a good emphasis about the goodness and the grace of God. Unfortunately, it has been at the expense, I think, of his justice and holiness. When we do hear of justice, it is about social justice and not the justice of God. So on the one hand the message the messages and the sermons are about positive thinking and, and prospering and emphasis on, on practicalities of Christian living and leadership and all of that. On the other hand, it is about equality and government action to the oppressed and the need for equity and so on and so forth. There is nothing wrong with that. The, the Bible certainly has a lot to say about these things. But there needs to be a, a, a balance recognising that the time we spend here on this planet, usually from birth and usually no more than 100 years, even if you get to live to 100 years, it's but a drop in a bucket in the ocean of eternity. There's a lot more on that side than there is on this side. Now there are five common views of hell. Some people have an image of hell that is not based on reality. For instance, Mark Twain said, I'll take heaven for the climate and hell for the society. Ted Turner, the founder of um, cable network CNN, multi-billionaire, once said, I'm looking forward to dying and going to hell because I know that's where I'm headed. Now, we've all heard the jokes trying to make light of, of hell. And one of them is usually, it goes something like this, uh, about the, there's a joke about the man who was happy to be in hell because at last he could have some peace and quiet from his wife. It used to be a common day expression and 
sometimes we even still use it, to hell with it. It's another expression. But people would not be so flippant about hell if they understood the reality of it because the scriptures are not flippant about hell. I, I, I've yet to read one part where it's, hell is treated and judgment is treated as a joke or as a passing remark. So what are some of the common views? The first one is denial. This is the most popular view amongst unbelievers or at least the severity of it. And by not say unbelievers, I would even include believers who do not believe uh, the full gospel and therefore they essentially become unbelievers. Uh, an elderly TV star uh, was asked by talk show host, uh, former talk show host Larry King about heaven and he replied, I'd like a lot of activity. Heaven sounds too placid for me. There's a lot to do in hell. But just to clarify that view of heaven, and you probably have a, might have in, accidentally you might have a similar view of heaven that there's not much to do there except play the harp. So next week we will talk about heaven. All right. So the first view is denial. The second view, the second view is earthly suffering. Many, some of you might have visited Auschwitz and some of the other concentration camps spread around Poland and, and, and Germany and some of you have survived genocides and, and, and know exactly what human suffering is about. And, and so you understand, I don't have to convince you at the, the depravity of man. And some people look at the depravity of such an expression of, of the human condition that they would say, Hell is what we go through on earth. Now, despite the unspeakable evil that man is capable of, this is not hell. This is not hell. The third view. So, first is denial. Second is hell is here, earthly suffering. Thirdly, it's annihilation. And annihilation refers to the the final destruction of all evil persons. This view is believed by the sects such as the Mormons, the JWs, the the Christadelphians. What is surprising is that this view is actually growing in popularity even amongst evangelicals. Uh, Even someone like John Stott, a respected theologian, was pointing in that direction. Now, a verse that is sometimes used to support this position is Matthew 10, 28, which says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fourth view is restoration. Um, restoration, basically, this view says all persons will ultimately be saved. This is the position of the universalists, irrespective of your creed, of your religion, of your faith, irrespective of, indeed, whatever evil you have committed, everyone will eventually be saved. A verse that is sometimes used to support this universalist position is, uh, is Romans 5.18. Christ, 
Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. So you can see how scripture can be twisted and turned in a way that to reinterpret something that is so serious and yet make light of it through human reinterpretation. I don't believe any of those views are what the scriptures truthfully tell us about. I believe the view number five, which is an ending torment. Hell is a place of eternal suffering. That is my view, that is the view of scripture, that is the view of traditional evangelicalism. This is the traditional belief and I believe the biblical view which I hold with great conviction. And from the truth of scripture I can assure you that there is a, a real devil, that there are real demons, that there is a real hell. You may not believe in hell this morning. You may think that it is just a state of mind. But let me tell you, there's a reason why the Bible continually warns, it warns us of such a place. There are 162 references in the New Testament alone which warns of hell. And over 70 of these references were uttered by none other than Jesus himself. Jesus had a lot to say about hell. The biblical description of hell. Let's, so, so let's look at, at some of the things that the Bible says. Well, for starters, hell is actually a real place. No, hell is not the grave. No, hell is not the figment of someone in somebody's imagination. No, hell is not a story made up to scare little boys and girls into being good. Jesus taught hell as a place to be feared. In fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. What's more, that was the very reason he left his throne in heaven, came to earth, died a cruel death on a cross for our sins. So that, why? so that we may accept his sacrifice and ask his forgiveness so that we do not end up in such a place called hell. But we can go to heaven to be with him. Jesus had a lot at stake in warning us and telling us about hell because he was going to live, give his life so that he could stay out of there, so he could take you to heaven to be with him. There's a lot at stake. And what are some of the words that are used in Scripture? Hades. Hades is used 11 times. It refers to the dwelling place of the wicked dead. That's uh, Hades is referred to in Luke 16, verse 23. Tartarus, referred to in 2 Peter Two, uh, two, four, the destiny of the wicked angels, also in Jude 6, 7. Uh, lake of fire, used five times in Revelation. This lake of fire, Revelations in, in the passage you read, Revelation 20, 15 and 21, 8. 
the bottomless pit, used nine times, refers to the, to the lower regions, the abode of, of, of the demons. Luke 8.31, when Jesus is casting out the demons, they pleaded with Jesus not to send them to the bottomless pit. Gehenna, used 12 times. It's the Aramaic form of the, the Hebrew Gehinon or the Valley of Himnon, which was the, the dump outside the city. The outer darkness from Matthew 8.12, uh, this is the, 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 the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And then in, in Luke 16.28, we have this place of torment. Now, these are all there in Scripture, both in, in the Old Testament in the New Testament. But is it something that you just go to and, and it just bang, it just disappears, it just become a, a puff of smoke because of the, the fire just burn and that's it? I, I, I wish it was that. But it's not. In fact, Matthew 25, 46 talks about eternal punishment. It says, then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Understand this please. If you're alive, all the people that you know who are alive or at least they look alive are human beings who will live for eternity. Everybody who has ever been alive who will be alive until the time that Jesus comes back, will live for eternity. The question is, will it, be, will it be eternity in heaven or will it be eternity in hell? Both are eternity. This is exactly what this verse says. They will go away to eternal punishment or eternal life. So this is the description of the last judgment. Jesus taught these words. He taught that some will go to eternal punishment, others to eternal life. And I want us to understand that, to accept that as God's truth. Hell will be as real and as lasting as heaven. We all live for eternity. The difference is the location. Mark 3.29, it talks about eternal condemnation. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 talks about everlasting destruction. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Then we read about the unquenchable fire. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go to hell where the fire never goes out. Jesus wasn't kidding. It wasn't a joke for him. This is how seriously we are to take the subject. And then, Revelation 20 verse 10, we, have a, we, we read about the eternal torment where it says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever.
The devil knows his destiny. The demons know their destiny. The devil believes the Bible because he talks about his destiny. The devil actually believes in God. The demons believe in God and they fear, but they want nothing to do with him for that very reason because they are in opposite camps. You might find it interesting that the doctrine of eternal punishment was taught in the Old Testament long before Jesus reinforced it in the Gospels. The words that we that appear scary to us, like weeping and gnashing of teeth, out of darkness, the worm, the fire, all directly taken from our Lord's teaching. So we cannot escape the fact that this this is Jesus himself that we learn from Jesus himself that we learn about the doctrine of eternal punishment. The horror of hell is not physical pain. After all, the Bible tells us that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. They're not physical beings. Rather, the fire and outer darkness and the thirst depict this eternal suffering, this continual spiritual separation from God, moral remorse, this, the, the, the remorse, of the, the, the consciousness that if only, if only you had done something about it, if only you had accepted Jesus, if only, if only, and this remorse continues through eternity. If only, if only I hadn't been so stupid, if only I hadn't been so stubborn. This is the description. It's a spiritual suffering for eternity. I know some of you have heard this question in the, in the school ground, in the university, and some of you are probably even, it's going through your head right now. How can a loving God send people to hell? Why did God create such a place? Well, the short answer is found in Matthew 25, 41, which says that Jesus said hell was a place prepared for the devil and his angels. If they're the people that you choose to live by, the devil and his angels, if that's, that's who you want to be with, well, that's who you will spend eternity with. Non-Christians, push, non-Christians, unbelievers, they push Jesus aside. They don't want him... They don't want God meddling in their lives. And God gives us many opportunities, many opportunities to accept him. But if we reject him, we find that in hell he ultimately grants us our wish to be separated from him. In hell, man finally gets his way. Hell is the culmination of telling God, to get out. You keep telling God to leave you alone and finally God says, okay, have it your way. 
G.K. Chesterton said that hell is the greatest compliment that God has ever paid to the dignity of human freedom. To be eternally separated. Think about this. To be eternally separated from the the very source of all love, all goodness and and beautiful. It, it, It should be, you're separated from that. It should be a terrifying prospect. Someone said, no one who is ever in hell will be able to say to God, you put me here. And no one who is ever in, who is, who is in heaven will ever be able to say, I put myself here. It's what to do with Jesus. A pastor, uh, J.D. Greer, and I put this on my Facebook page, he said this and I quote, If people are converted to God simply because they are scared, scared of hell, they they might submit, but it wouldn't change their heart attitude toward God. If you accept Jesus just to get out of hell, then you will hate being in heaven because only those who love and trust God will enjoy heaven. If you don't love the Father, then living in the Father's house will feel like slavery. It would be like forcing you to marry someone you didn't want to marry. The only way you'll enjoy heaven is when you learn to love and trust God. And when does that start? It starts now. It starts now. The greatest greatest benefit of being in heaven is because we're going to be in the presence of the Father. Heaven would be a drag. Eternity would be a drag if the Father wasn't there. And the Lamb. That is the fulfilment of all our desires, right there. But more about that next week. I have to confess to you that I personally wish that hell was not true. And if it was true, that I I, I personally feel much more comfortable with the whole position of annihilation. That those who don't believe get judged and get zapped and that's it, that's the end of it. I, I personally wish that was true for the sake of family and friends who are not believers. You, as, as a father, as, as a grandparents and great-grandparents, you, there's something wrong with you if you wish hell to any of your kids. And because of that, because of that pain of, of what the scripture says and, and the reality of the relationship with your kids and your grandkids and your friends and people you love, because they, don't, they reject the saviour that you love, you try and, and sort of say, how can I... Re- bring those two things together, that conflict together. So what happens, and even with pastors, some some former colleagues, old colleagues, they've changed their stance, they've softened their stance on this whole subject of eternal damnation. They soften their view because they, they, they cannot imagine their loved ones not being there with them in heaven. I 
One thing we cannot do is change the Word of God to suit us. The truth is there for a reason. I like the words of Spurgeon. I love this. This is what he said. He says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms above their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Let me repeat that because I think it's worth remembering. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms above their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. What can you do for your loved ones? It's exactly there. Warn them and pray for them. If they won't listen, pray for them. Again and again and again. Now many things we don't know about hell but Jesus and the New Testament writers and the Old Testament writers used every image in their power, the language that they had available to them to tell us that hell is real, it is terrible, it is something to be feared and it is something to be avoided at all costs. Spurgeon, in fact, said this, he says, it is a very remarkable fact that no inspired preacher of whom we have any record ever uttered such terrible words concerning the destiny of the lost as our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we have to take it seriously. Because, and understand this, before he came to save us by dying on the cross, he came to warn us of the consequences of rejecting him. It is there. So before we finish this morning, I want to ask you, do you know you are going to heaven with all assurance, with all certainty in your heart? If you are unsure, I want you to pray this prayer in your heart as we bow our heads. Just between, just pray between you and God. Repeat, repeat after me. Let's pray. Dear God, I confess that I am a sinner and I am sorry for all the wrongs and sins that I have committed. I believe that your son Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins for which I repent. Please forgive me and come into my life as Lord and Saviour. Please give me the strength through the Holy Spirit to be what you want me to be. Thank you for dying for my sins, for forgiving me, for your gift of eternal life and for hearing and answering my prayer. Amen. Now, if you have prayed that prayer for the, for the very first time, 
I would like to talk to you after the service so I can help you understand a little bit more of what it means to be a Christian. If it's an issue of assurance, I would also like to talk to you about that. Now for others this morning, I have some more questions. You're not going to get away with it that easy. You live each and every day, and I know that we go through struggles, the ups and downs, whatever trials we're going through. Irrespective of that, are you still eternally grateful for your salvation in Christ? If you are personally benefiting from the salvation of Christ, and I hope and trust that we all, all of us here are, do you have a desire, this deep desire, to see others saved, to come to the Lord Jesus and trust him as the Lord and Saviour? Are you still convinced that the gospel is powerful? that God uses the powerful gospel to save people. Because you see, if, if, if you believe in the reality of hell, then you'll also need to know our responsibility as Christians to warn people, to pray for people, to tell them about the forgiveness. They don't have to go to hell. They can trust Jesus. God provided the way and we can trust him. I'll leave that with you. All praise and glory be to to God through Jesus Christ. And the glory we will continue to sing for all of eternity for this very reason, for what he came to do you and me, and for us. Amen.